Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who hast set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. That thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers. The moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, by thine excellent name, which was spread through all the world by the apostles, perfect the praise of thy victory in us who are the work of thy fingers, that our enemy may be stilled, and we crowned with the perpetual triumph of glory and worship. Wherefore we say glory be to the Father, who hath put all things under the feet of the Son of Man. Glory be to the Son, who though Son of God, vouchsafed to become Son of Man, and to be made lower than the angels, and now is crowned with glory and honor as priest and king. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the finger of God, by whom the heavens were made, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. amen. Well, this morning, after spending nine consecutive weeks on Shorter Catechism Question 4, we finally come to the last of the divine names listed here. So let, let's read uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism Question 4, and then we'll uh, look at the divine name truth. So this is on page five of your bulletin. Question 4 asks, what is God? Answer, God, God is, is a spirit. spirit. Very good. So what does it mean to say that God is truth? Before Jesus was crucified, Pontius Pilate famously said Jesus answers with some people questioning whether there is even such a thing as truth. You know, have you met those people? There's my truth. There's your truth. Everyone has their own truth. I mean, what even is truth, dude? Um, just as you have you met, met those people, right? I, I've met a few of them. Just as, uh, just as the good signifies that which our appetite desires, good is what your appetite desires, so also the true signifies that which your intellect tends toward. Truth is first and foremost intellectual. It is something that resides in the mind or intellect. Truth is only secondarily and by relation in things themselves. 
and then only insofar as they correspond to the divine intellect, the mind of God, which is what grounds all truth and makes truth objective. To give a creaturely example of how we can speak of truth, uh, we might say that a house or a building is true when it corresponds to the form in the architect's mind. Or we say that a diamond ring is a true diamond when it possesses the essential nature that is proper to real diamonds. True thing. And there are only true thoughts and true things when they conform to the God who is himself truth. This is because God is essential truth. Unlike you and I, who must compose and divide and deliberate within ourselves to arrive at the truth, God has always and forever comprehended all things in a single act of understanding. And that act of understanding is identical to who he is. It is his very being. God cannot learn anything new. Nothing can be gained or lost by God's intellect, but rather his intellect is what gives intelligibility to everything else. Jesus says in John 8 that when you know the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. He also says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. To know the truth then is to know a person. It is to know Jesus, and to know Jesus is to know God, and to know God is the ultimate end of your existence, to apprehend with your intellect the beauty and majesty and glory that is God. And when you see him who is truth, it will transform you. As it says in 1 John 3, 2, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God is very truth. He is what our wandering intellect is searching for. And so come to know him in the Lord Jesus, for he is truth made flesh for us. To contemplate these things should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. <laughs> the enemies of God are brought down and fallen. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 19b to verse 35. These are the words of God. And they went into an house. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, He hath Beelzebub, Beelzebub and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. 
And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that guides us into the truth. We ask for illumination now as we consider uh, some hard and challenging words from the Lord Jesus. We ask for help in his name, and amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to what St. Augustine considered to be Uh, the most challenging question in all of Holy Scripture, which is, uh, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? So, uh, you know, St. Augustine, maybe the best or second best theologian in the history of the church. If this was hard for him, uh, it might be a little difficult for us as well. Uh, Various and diverse answers have been given to this question, and uh, we'll tackle that later in the sermon But um, we should not let that distract us, this question of what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We don't want that to distract us from the more central issue here. So uh, let me remind you of the context that Mark has been setting up. Last week, we saw that Jesus called to himself the 12 disciples. These 12 disciples are the reconstitution of the nation of Israel. Israel. They stand in contrast to uh, what is the nation of Israel, which in many respects has become apostate. This apostasy is especially evident in that everywhere Jesus has gone in this gospel uh, has been a place infested with demons. Rather than coming to a nation that is pure and full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes to Galilee and he finds a people that are sick and dying and oppressed by evil spirits. So the calling of the 12 is the formation of a new society. It is the beginning of a new Israel, a new nation, a new house and kingdom of God. This is the beginning of what will eventually be us, the Christian church. And as we see in Revelation 21, the 12 apostles are the 12 foundation upon which we, the new Jerusalem, are built. So Mark is setting up Jesus and the 12 as one community, one house. And now he is going to contrast that house with two rival communities, two rival houses. So what are those two arrivals in our text? Well, um, the first is Jesus, family and friends, or what we might call the natural house. The second rival house is the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They represent God's house, the temple, back in Jerusalem. 
And the question before Jesus' audience is really the same question before all of us today. Which house are you in? Which house has your loyalty and love? Who is in that house? Who has your utmost affections and allegiance? That is the theme of this section, conflict between rival houses. So let us walk through um, our text together and see how this conflict uh, plays out. So starting in verse uh, 19b, it says, and they went into an house. Uh, So far in Mark's gospel, uh, anytime Jesus calls a new disciple to follow him, what is the next thing that he does? He goes into a house to eat. This is, this is his pattern. This is the messianic uh, MO. He did this first after calling the four fishermen. He then went into Peter's house. He did this a second time after calling Levi the tax collector. He went into Levi's house. And now this is the third time that he calls more disciples and then goes into a house uh, to eat. We presume that this is Peter's house again, which is where we've already seen some uh, miraculous healings and exorcisms. Uh, It says in verse 20, and the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So implying this is probably the same place uh, they were before. Earlier, we saw the multitudes pressing into this house. We said, you know, if if the excavations are correct in in, uh, Capernaum, this is probably a a three to five thousand square foot plot. That's about uh, the size of of their um, of their house. And people are just crowded all around it. So uh, there, there's nowhere to sit. In previous scenes, Jesus healed a paralytic who was let down through the ceiling. Uh, we wonder, we presume it's been fixed by now. So they come down from the mountain with uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples. They're hungry. They come there, but it says they cannot so much as eat bread. Uh, being with Jesus is very Uh, inconvenient. It's very inconvenient to attending the normal bodily needs of eating and sleeping, which, you know, everyone has to do. Uh, These routines are constantly interrupted by multitudes who are clamoring for healing and help from Jesus. Verse 21 says this, and when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. So here, uh, this word friends, or it might be something different in your translation, uh, but friends here refers to uh, just the people who are with Jesus. It probably uh, refers to his uh, friends or family members. And because his family shows up uh, at the end of this scene, it's probably referring to them here. Later, we'll see his mother and brothers and sisters calling unto him from outside the house. But here we are told that these friends uh, went out to lay hold on him. And uh, this translation kind of lightens it a little bit. Uh, This is not just, you know, putting your shoulder around someone and patting them on the back. This is more of like uh, kidnapping someone or or seizing them. That's uh, the sense of this word here. The idea is that uh, Jesus' family or friends uh, think he's gone crazy. So, you know, the guy gets baptized by John the Baptist and the next thing you know, he thinks he's God, right? (laughs) Uh, And in every other case, Uh, their response would be a really, uh, you know, reasonable thing to do. Uh, If if your brother or sister did what Jesus did, you might have second thoughts about, uh, you know, 
is he, is he God? You know, my, my brother, is, is my son God? That's a, a wild thought. So uh, they're, they're going uh, to get him. They want to restrain Jesus. They want to keep him from embarrassing himself or, you know, bringing shame upon the family. It's possible they want to protect him from the crowds and the controversy that is following him, right? If Jesus keeps on this way, he's probably going to end up dead. And, you know, we don't want uh, Jesus to die. They're doing what concerned friends and family naturally do. Of course, we know in this case that they are committing the sin of unbelief, right? Jesus is not just any man. This is a lack of faith that Jesus is God and that he knows what he is doing. It will not be until after his resurrection that their eyes are opened to this truth. So this is really uh, the first of the rival houses that Jesus must contend with. Family with its natural concerns, his natural well-being, and uh, perhaps you've experienced this same tension in your life. You you become a Christian, maybe you have family who is uh, unbelieving, and suddenly now there's you know things are different. There's tensions. You're not as close, or they might even you know unfriend you, unfamily you uh, because of it. Now, uh, before we see how Jesus responds to the natural house, Mark inserts a second rival house into the narrative. Uh, and Mark likes to do this. We're going to see it multiple times in the gospel where Mark uses what we might call kind of a sandwich structure in his uh, gospel. So he begins a line of thought or in you know film, you might call this the A story or the primary plot line. And then he interrupts it with a subplot or a B story, which when completed gives you kind of a perspective on the A story. So the story starts, there's an interruption with another story, and then he concludes the A story on the other half. That, that's the sandwich structure, and we're going to see this uh, quite a few times in uh, the gospel. So we see it for the first time here, um, and we might ask, what then is the A story? So uh, the A story is that Jesus and his disciples are in the house, and they can't eat because the multitude uh, and his friends and family have come to uh, kidnap slash rescue him, you know, take him back to Nazareth. Then in verse 22, we have the second rival house introduced. So this is now the B story, the, the subplot. Verse 22 says, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. So what house is this? This is the, the religious house. And these scribes are not uh, local Galilean scribes. They're not priests from Capernaum. Uh, These are the the scribal elite. These are the most learned men who come from the big city of Jerusalem. Uh, The modern equivalent might be to say that these are, uh, you know, the guys who studied at Oxford and Cambridge, got their uh, doctorate, and now they are coming on behalf of the king of England, right? So they have a massive amount of clout because of who they are and where they represent. This is a a retinue of sorts from Jerusalem. The charge that uh, these scribes make against Jesus is that he himself is possessed. He's possessed by the devil and not any devil, by the prince of the devils. Uh, Beelzebub means uh, Lord of the Flies or something like that, which as we will see shortly is just another name for Satan. So, you know, Lord of the underworld, Lord of the dung heap, Lord of the Flies. uh, This is Satan. So they think he's possessed by Satan. How does Jesus respond to this accusation? Uh, Verses 23 to 27. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, man and then he will spoil his house. So Jesus' a clap back here is that the scribes are, are poor theologians. In their envy, they have overlooked the basic truth that Satan cannot cast out Satan, right? This should be obvious. This is, you know, theology 101. And uh, if such a thing even were possible, well, then the kingdom of darkness would implode on itself. There wouldn't be all these uh, devils everywhere in the promised land. Satan and his demons then are united in their opposition against God. And therefore, the kingdom of darkness must be plundered from outside. And this is what Jesus likens his ministry to, right? In Jesus, in this parable, Jesus is the stronger man. He's the one who kicks down Satan's door, binds him, and plunders his goods. And from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what he's been doing, right? He's baptized, he goes into the wilderness, he's with the wild beasts, and he, he's fighting Satan. He's binding Satan. He goes into the synagogues. He's casting out devils. He's plundering their house. We might also ask in this parable, what are the goods? What are the spoils of Satan's house? Well, they are you and me, right? They're the souls of men. Men who, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, have been delivered from the domain, the house of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So healing and exorcism is one thing, but the forgiveness of sins is what actually transfers a person from Satan's house to Jesus' house. The devil is a strong man. He has a dark kingdom, but Jesus is a much stronger man who comes with an infinitely more powerful kingdom. And he is going about Galilee, transferring men into his house. In the parallel passage of this same scene, so Matthew's version of this scene, Jesus adds, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. So this uh, entourage of accusing scribes from Jerusalem stands refuted. Jesus reasons that no house that is divided against itself can continue to stand unless someone stronger comes along, namely him. And even these scribes had to admit that Satan's kingdom was still very present among them, perhaps in their mind most exemplified by their Roman overlords. There is also in here, in Jesus' parable, um, a prophetic warning against these scribes. And that is that the temple in Jerusalem was itself a divided house. So the high priesthood was controlled by the Sadducees, which, uh, strictly speaking, were heretics, while the Pharisees were kind of the dominant teachers and rulers of the people. So there's this great rivalry between Sadducees and Pharisees. And if uh, you remember the book of Acts, Paul's going to really exploit this when they're trying to kill him. He's going to say, you know, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Uh, that's something that the Sadducees uh, rejected while the Pharisees uh, were orthodox, at least, 
And uh, the Pharisees are the ones that have the dignity of actually arguing with Jesus for the most part, right? They're the Orthodox party. The Sadducees are the heterodox party, but they had control of the high priesthood. So there's this divided house in Jerusalem. And if you know the history of this uh, parable is going to come to pass. So uh, Jerusalem, Rome is going to come and siege Jerusalem, and there's going to be you know, two, three, four different factions within Jerusalem, and there's just mass civil war. So outside the walls, you're going to die because the Romans are there, and inside the walls, it's even worse because they're slaughtering one another. So th- they're actually going to light their own uh, food supply on fire. Uh, they're going to actually be the ones who burn their own temple down. So uh, Jerusalem really is going to implode in the years uh, 67 uh, to 70 because a house divided cannot stand. They're going to burn the thing down. So Jesus is issuing a prophetic warning about this, and he's going to teach uh, more on this when we get to Mark chapter 13. So this is a subtle uh, warning to them. And then he gives a much more serious warning if they want to avoid that future destruction. Verses 28 to 30. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnations. And then Mark inserts this little comment, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. So here we come now to that difficult uh, question. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, to answer this, why don't we start with what uh, it is not? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you what it is not. First notice that Jesus says here, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And this includes blaspheming Jesus. Who, who is God. So under Mosaic law, blasphemy was uh, what we would call a capital crime. You could be put to death for blaspheming. Uh, we see this actually happen. So Leviticus 24, 16 says, and he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall certainly stone him as well. The stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall be put to death. So blasphemy under God's law was not just a sin, it was a crime. It was something that had real penalties to it. And uh, this is the charge that the scribes and Pharisees are going to use to get Jesus crucified. So there's a list of capital crimes, and they're going to say, here's Jesus, a man claiming to be God. That is blasphemy. Therefore, he must Die, and they must appeal to Rome uh, to have him murdered because they, uh, they, the Jews had the death penalty taken from them. So Rome actually uh, controlled that. Jesus, of course, knows this is going to happen, and he declares to them now that even this sin is going to be forgiven them. Right? What does Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So someone could blaspheme God, they could curse him or even crucify him. And Jesus says, all sins, even those, shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, even blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. This is further proved by the example of the Apostle Paul, who says in 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
So notice that in both Jesus' prayer from the cross and in Paul's confession, that this kind of blasphemy uh, is done in ignorance. So the kind of blasphemy that is forgiven is the kind done in ignorance. And I think this is really key to understanding what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Okay, so that's what it's not. It's not just plain blasphemy against God. Let me now give you the three basic interpretive options as to what uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And uh, I should note here that these three options are not mutually exclusive. All three of these could be, uh, in some sense, what Scripture is referring to. So option option one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is uh, simply the literal verbal utterance of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Right? This is kind of the, the surface, straightforward view. Uh, this view is held by Athanasius, Hillary, Ambrose, Jerome, and Chrysostom. So, you know, those are the big guys. If, if you don't know who they are, they're the big guys. You listen to what they say. Um, under this interpretation, this sin is what the scribes are doing in our passage. So they're calling the work of the Holy Spirit a work of Satan or uh, calling the spirit that is in Jesus an unclean spirit. To say that and to mean it is to blaspheme in an unforgivable way under this uh, interpretation. Um, Another possible example of this sin might be uh, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and boom, they drop dead. It's possible that that's also kind of a form of blasphemy against the Spirit. So so that's option one. Uh, Option two, uh, this is St. Augustine's view, was that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is persistent unrepentance. Persistent unrepentance. So notice this would include... Uh, blasphemy as described in option one. So it would include that, but it would add the condition that the person willfully uh, resist and reject the Holy Spirit until they die. In support of this, uh, he'd probably point to the fact that Jesus says these scribes are just in danger of eternal fire. And therefore, although they are at present blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it will only be unforgivable if they continue to do so. So under this option, you would actually you could actually say the Apostle Paul commits this sin of sorts, but then uh, repents. And then, uh, you know, he's persecuting Jesus. He's resisting the spirit. But by God's grace, he's brought to repentance. So in that sense, Paul did not persist in his blasphemy. So that's uh, St. Augustine's view. And then a, a third option is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is uh, the sin of malice or contempt against the Holy Spirit's goodness. Uh, So uh, we might call this the sin of hard-heartedness or apostasy. So this would, again, include sins like option one, just literal verbal blasphemy. But here it would add the condition that it it is a sin without ignorance, right? You really clearly know uh, what you are doing. So this is kind of the sin of the devils. So why don't the devils or of the fallen angels get any chance to repent? Well, it's because they have a lot more knowledge than human beings do, right? They have, they behold who God is and then choose to reject it, you know, knowingly. And this is one of the riddles of trying to understand, you know, why did Satan fall? How how does that work? Uh, But we would say this kind of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is kind of like the sin of the angels. So just as the fallen angels had no, there's no opportunity for repentance for them, right? It's an unforgivable sin when they turn away from God. They call God Satan. They call Satan God. They invert things. 
So uh, the people, the human beings who do that, are committing this same kind of sin. So that's, that's the third option. Uh, so kind of to summarize here, you can see there is some overlap in these three options, but each of them nuance it in a, a little bit different way. Uh, I think what it ultimately comes down to uh, is determining whether or not these scribes are actually committing this sin or just in danger of committing this sin. And uh, good arguments could be made in both directions. I will leave that for you to ponder. Uh, my position is a blend of options two and three, so both of which would include uh, but qualify option one. So my position, uh, you don't have to take this as gospel, I'm just telling you what the options are. Uh, I believe that a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willful, knowledgeable, so that's without ignorance, rejection of the Holy Spirit. Willful, knowledgeable rejection of the Holy Spirit. This would include verbal blasphemous utterances like the scribes are doing here. But I think these scribes are partially ignorant still and therefore are only in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. One of the reasons I think this is the case is because in the book of Acts, we see that many scribes and Pharisees actually repent and become Christians who were formerly opposed to him. Uh, Paul would be one example of this. Uh, Acts chapter six, verse seven says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So priests, scribes, Pharisees, that class of people, uh, a bunch of them become Christians. So what Jesus says on the cross about God forgiving the people who crucified him uh, comes to pass in the book of Acts, right? At Pentecost, Peter preaches to the very people who murdered God, and 3,000 of them uh, repent, they're forgiven, and are baptized and added to the church. So there's also here a kind of historical element to this kind of sin, in that those who continued to resist the Holy Spirit after the resurrection are now really without excuse. So they're no longer ignorant of his claims to deity. You could be forgiven for not knowing Jesus is God, right? Even the disciples don't understand that Jesus is God. Uh, Peter's going to try to, you know, say, Jesus, why, why don't you calm down? And Jesus is going to say, you know, get behind me, Satan. So the disciples don't even quite have that knowledge. So I, I think it's a little too high a bar to say that these scribes had that. But after the spirit is poured out, after the resurrection, after he ascends into heaven and you know, okay, clearly, clearly this guy is God. If you continue to resist Jesus, resist the Holy Spirit, then, well, now there's not really an excuse. You, you have a sufficient knowledge. Now you're committing a sin like the demons commit. So that's my uh, kind of understanding of the unforgivable sin. And then really a common question people ask then is, can people still commit this sin today, right? Um, I, I think people can. I think people can really know God and really uh, reject him. God could give them over to their sin and they can be unforgivable. However, uh, some people wonder if, uh, you know, once upon a time they had the thought or, you know, they said the words, I curse you, Holy Spirit. Uh, that if they did that, they're therefore unsavable. Is that true? Um, the short answer is no. Um, I don't think a momentary thought or blasphemy like that is unforgivable to, to mean and say that even. Uh, the longer answer is that the only person who can commit this kind of sin is someone who has real light, real knowledge of God, 
such that they know what they are rejecting. And then knowing who the Holy Spirit is, they depart from the faith. Essentially, they refuse salvation. They harden their heart. And God says, thy will be done, right? I'll give you what you want. Separation from God, both now and forever. Uh, Whatever your understanding of this sin is, uh, we all know it's playing with fire to go anywhere near it, right? So don't, don't blaspheme at all, right? Don't blaspheme at all. Get as far away from hell as possible. Uh, returning to our text, Mark then brings a conclusion to the A story in verses uh, 31 to 35. So we see how Jesus responds to his family. It says, there came then his brethren and his mother and standing without, so outside the house, sent unto him inside, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. So the scene here is Jesus is in the house, with the 12, while his family is outside the house calling for him. This difference of place illustrates what Jesus makes explicit in words. Who is in Jesus' house? Who is Jesus' true family? Who has the deeper connection to him? Is it Mary? Is it his mother? Is it his brothers and sisters who grew up with him? Well, Jesus says it is whoever, whosoever, shall do the will of God. That is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is drawing lines. He is drawing boundaries for the new Jerusalem. He is defining what makes someone in or out. Are you with him or are you against him? Do you do the will of God? Well, then you are Jesus' family. You are in his house. As radical as this might seem to pit the natural family against the spiritual family, Jesus is not introducing anything new here, right? The Ten Commandments already put worship of God and loyalty to him as more important, higher up on the list, than honoring father and mother and the rest. Jesus is not being rude here to his family. He is not dishonoring them by saying this. He is just restating what God has always commanded, that worshiping the true God and dwelling with him takes precedent over everything else, even the natural family. This is, uh, you know, we live in a time where the natural family is really uh, under attack by, you know, every quarter. Uh, But at this time, this is really radical when, you know, the family, the Potter Familias has a lot of gravitas, a lot of weight. So this is a revolutionary idea uh, to, to the Roman or pagan mind. But this is not anything new if you were a Hebrew. So Jesus is not being rude to his family. He is restating what God has always said. When God called Abraham, he left his idolatrous family behind. When Jesus called James and John to follow him, they left their father in the ship with the servants. In Luke's gospel, we are told that when Jesus himself was a boy and Mary and Joseph were looking for him in Jerusalem, Jesus said to them when they finally find him, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? For Jesus, that which is eternal takes precedent over that which is temporal. 
And it is in this sense that the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. Commitment to Christ and the household of faith may mean at times leaving your unbelieving parents behind. It's very painful. This is sometimes what Jesus calls you to do. It might mean you are rejected or disowned by your siblings or family or cousins or uncles or aunts for what you believe. I'm sure there are many people in this room who've experienced this. But if you do the will of God, if you do the will of God and are loyal to Jesus and his house, well, then you are joined to a fellowship that lasts forever. A fellowship that begins in this life and continues on into eternity. This is a fellowship and union that is even deeper than the marriage bond. It is a fellowship that is with the triune God, whose glory we shall behold and enjoy together with more saints than you and I could ever count forever. That is the family, that is the household that Jesus invites every person to join, right? The whole, he gives to the whole world in his death and resurrection an invitation to join the eternal family of God. And so how do you get in? Well, you do the will of God. You repent, you believe. For in Jesus alone and no other is there forgiveness of sins. And he loves, he delights to forgive all who will come to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these words that are indeed life, light, truth unto us. God, we ask that as we feel this tension between uh, the various loyalties, the good things of friends and family, the Uh, our work, all of these good things that um, are temporal here. God, we often feel that tension between those things and the things of heaven, the things that last forever. God, we ask that you would grow us, mature us up to not just love this world that we can see with our eyes, but to love the eternal world, the glorious new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Make us to long for and look for that more than we look for things here. We pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. As we have seen in Mark's gospel, Jesus loves to eat with his disciples. And every Sunday, Jesus continues that pattern. He calls us together. We hear his word and then we sit down for a meal. A household that eats together stays together. And this meal is one of the ways our bonds are strengthened and our love for one another is reaffirmed. When we consider the bread and the wine, which show forth the death of Christ, we are reminded that Jesus loved God and loved us even unto death. And so to eat of Christ's body and blood is to confess our willingness to do the same, to love God and to love one another, even unto death. For this is the will of God, that we love him because he first loved us. So come in faith, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Do the will of God. Do the will of God. And if you are not sure what the will of God is, start with what is really clear. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to 18 says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do that, and you will do well. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.